Thank you so much, Deacon Ria, for leading us in our service, and thank you to the singers and musicians for leading us always to point to Christ, not knowing what our circumstances are, but we know that as we listen to God and listen to God's Son, we have, we find everything. If we cannot beat them, we join them. That's what they say in English. And so we cannot beat the world, and the world is caught up with Taylor Swift. We might as well talk about Taylor Swift. So what are the characteristics of Taylor Swift that makes her so attractive that she's now a global icon? And here are some things I got from the internet. She's very engaged with her fans. She's very helpful to both her employees and at times really a big-hearted and philanthropic to her fans. So examples of that, she's given $55 million to her employees all the way from the dancers to the riggers to the uh, sound technicians. Um, actually, you're in the wrong team. You should join Taylor Swift. They, 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 they serve for free at the back. Uh, to the caterers, to the truckies, etc. And Trinity Foster, 16-year-old in America, was found with cancer. And Taylor Swift found out about this and gave her $10,000 for her hospital fees. In all those ways, she's becoming an icon. What's characteristic of a Swifty, someone who is a fan of Taylor Swift? They are known for their high levels of participation, their high levels of creativity, their high levels of community, they feel like a community, and the high levels of fanaticism around the world. Right. What are characteristics? Some more. Swifty supports Swift through her genre transitions, even though her music might change from one album to the other, even though she may have highly publicised controversies, they will remain loyal and faithful to her. Swifties are like a subculture. They are almost a near metaverse. We'll explain that later if you don't understand what it is. And if your economy is not doing well, don't, don't ask the economists, don't ask the politicians, just ask Taylor Swift to come. She will solve the economy for wherever she goes. She'll bring in $500 million to a billion dollars. It's so strange. I was just preaching at the church in, in Sydney, Reverend John Ting's church, and holding a marriage uh, retreat there. And as, we, as they were planning, the, the leaders were planning, I said, I, I want a group of maybe 20, no more than that, so that it's, it's uh, intimate. And the leader said, no worries, 20 people, 20 couples is not a problem. Closer to the time, he, he said, I only got nine couples. I say, why? Uh, Taylor Swift is in Sydney. <laughs> How can Christian beat Taylor Swift? Come on. <laughs> and so, by 2023, the word Swifty was added to the Oxford Dictionary of English. So, what are the characteristics of a Swifty? What are the characteristics of a soccer fan, of Man U, of Liverpool? What are the characteristics of other fans. On the dark side, what are the characteristics of followers of Al-Qaeda or ISIS, who are perhaps fans and fanatic about their whole dream to bring a caliphate? Which leads us to where we are today in Luke chapter 6. What are the characteristics of those of us who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus? What are the, the, the distinctiveness? And here we go with the first slide. We are to be distinctively hopeful as believers and followers of Jesus. We are to be distinctively loving, and that is the heart of this teaching by the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do not know Jesus for, you know him for his love. And love is all around us in our pop songs, but his love is a, is a distinctive, a unique, a never-to-be-matched love. And then if we know the distinctive love of the Lord Jesus, will be distinctively wise to build our house upon the rock. And so it begins this way. Jesus went down with them and stood at a level place. And that's why this is called the Sermon on the Plain. A large crowd of his disciples just meaning followers. Disciples can have a double meaning. The close number, the apostles, and the disciples, anybody who follows him, the hundreds of the thousands who follows him are called disciples. And there was a great number of people from all over Judea from Jerusalem and from the coastal region, from Tyre and from Sidon, who had come to hear him to be healed of their diseases. So two reasons they came and followed him. Two reasons they were fans of the Lord Jesus. They came to hear his teaching, which was authoritative, and they came to be healed of their diseases. 
And then there's the third reason that is thrown in. Those who are troubled by impure spirits were cured, which means, if you read deeper and further, is the first reference to demonic spirits, which tells you when the kingdom of God breaks into Jesus, the kingdom of Satan breaks down. And the kingdom of Satan that you live in is characterized by disease, demons, and death. Three Ds, as it were. And the people all tried to touch him because there were a lot of superstitious belief that maybe he's just a magic man. And because power was coming from him and healing them all. But it is his teaching that is the height of what is on view here in Luke chapter 6. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor. Why? For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now. Poor people will hunger and you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep. Poor people not just hunger but are sad. For you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil, instead of calling you, hey, you're following a man called Jesus. He's obviously a man from God, a man of God. Instead of calling you good or wise, they will call you evil. And why? Because of this son of man. Son of man has two possible meanings in the scriptures, in the gospels. Son of man is like a pronoun. Instead of saying, uh, I say to you, I, Christian, say to you, I, son of man, say to you, and then you, son of man, say to me. So two son of men are saying to each other. So it's a way of saying I. The more unique meaning of son of man comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, where he sees a figure, Daniel sees a figure in a vision, and he sees a figure walking up to God. He's a God-man. Is he fully God, fully man? We don't know he's a God-man. And you know from your theology in the Old Testament, you never approach the holy God as sinful men and women. When we approach the holy God, we'll be struck down. But this God-man approaches God and instead of being struck down, receives glory, honour, power, majesty forever. He receives eternal authority to be God's eternal king, ruling over his eternal kingdom, collapsing all the kingdoms of this world. That's why Daniel sees, and in all likelihood, Jesus now is the fulfillment of this figure. And so, where does that take us? Jesus was both growing in popularity, and there was growing hostility towards him. And the turning point recorded for us in Luke chapter 5 is this. He healed a leper, unclean, and included him. He healed, he had authority to forgive sins. And for the Israelites, only God had authority to forgive sins. Right? If anybody besides you say, I forgive you your sins, that, that person is making a bold claim, a staggering claim. Jesus was like a teenager who never grew up, always chose the wrong friends. He always hung around the wrong friends. He hung around tax collectors and sinners. His followers didn't fast, for fasting was one of the signals that they were spiritual. And Jesus does this, he breaks the Sabbath. And so there was increasing hostility towards Jesus, increasing opposition to outright persecution of him because they were deemed to be anti-law, the Ten Commandments, the law, anti-Sabbath. And when you are anti-the law and Sabbath, you are anti-Israel. How can this man be from God when everything he, he is doing seems to be so anti-God? And it is the context to understand Jesus' teaching about blessings and woes. Who does he bless? And who does he pronounce the woes or the curses upon? All those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they are blessed. And so there is national and nationalistic Israel and Israelites, and God has always told them, national and nationalistic Israelite who embark on superficial law-keeping and superficial temple-going, they are not the children of God. It's the faithful Israel the remnant Israel, and up to chapter 4, you got glimpses of who will be faithful Israel. The Elizabeths, the Marys, the Simeons, the forgotten people of this world, are of Israel, 
are chosen by God to be part of His salvation plan. Faithful Israel is different. Remnant Israel is different to national, nationalistic Israel. And so the blessing is upon the faithful who will now believe in Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises that God made in the Old Testament. So poor could be spiritually poor, financially poor, and you're poor, you're, you're out of line, you're ostracized. But guess what? That is your present circumstance, your present experience, but you will receive the kingdom of God. So as disciples, you always have to distinguish between what happens to you now and what will happen to you in the future. And we always live with delayed blessings. It has begun, but it's not full. Now, but not yet. You will, so you're poor, you will hunger, you long for righteousness, but you will be satisfied. You will weep. There's present sorrow, but there's future joy when Jesus returns. You'll be hated, you'll be excluded, you'll be reviled, you'll be spurned on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Great is your reward, for their fathers did the same to God's prophets. Meaning, for them, they have a whole history and story of what? I do not know. How would you summarize your life? What would be the history of your life? The story of Israel's life is they had a whole history of God sending them prophets to lovingly, truthfully warn them that their superficial, fake religiousness was displeasing to God. And it will be judged. It will be punished with exile. But prophet after prophet after prophet that God sent to them, especially when they were prosperous, was rejected by them and some were killed by them. For their fathers did the same to God's prophets. So blessed is translated in some Bibles as happy are those, joyful are those, uh, but it actually means God's favour is upon those who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. And though in this world, beginning with the first Jews who believe, though they are poor, though they are hungry, though they weep, though they are hated, they are ones who are truly blessed. You've got to distinguish between the true and the fake. But woe to those who are rich now but will, and receive their consolation. Those who are fulfilled now, but they will be hungry. Those who laugh now, they will mourn and weep later. Those who speak well of you, for their fathers spoke well of the false prophets. False prophets came along in opposition to true prophets. And they came along and said, you know why you're prosperous? Because you're faithful to God. When the reality is you're not faithful, you're just superficially going to the temple, superficially obeying God with no intention to love God and love neighbour. Woe to you. God's disfavour upon fake obedience. And he makes a staggering statement now, right, when you listen to Jesus carefully. Israel, you're not the children of God. Only the true, the Israelites, the remnant, who listen to me as the fulfilment, you are the children of God. That's a staggering statement. You go to Israel today and make the statement, that you Singaporean Christians are truly the, Christ, the children of God. We Indian Christians are the children of God. We African Christians are the children of God. We mainland Chinese Christians are the children of God. They'll be staggered by your statement. But that statement is absolutely true. And so, what Jesus is getting at is that don't confuse your present circumstances and suffering don't confuse your present opposition and persecution with your future and full blessings as the children of God. And what will take you from present suffering to future is hope. So it's very important to check out hope. And what is the basis of your hope? What's the foundation of your hope? Right? Very, very important. And so the world's hopes Sometimes we daydream about our hopes. And so in England, they are still hoping that one day they will win the World Cup. Can we go and tell the English fans, can you please give up? It will not happen. Will you? 
The Europeans have told them for years. Do, will you, can you hope that one day we Singapore, tiny puny Singapore, will not just host the Olympics, but we will win the most gold medals, more than the Americans and the Russians and the Chinese put together. That's a daydream. So what's the basis of your hope from now to the future? If it's a daydream, it's on hopeless ground. Soldiers who go out to war suffer PTSD. They hope post-traumatic stress disorder. You see your fellow soldiers' hands blown off, die before your very eyes. War is never pretty. War is only pretty ugly. Never glorify war. Right? And then they come back, and how do they escape that what I'm suffering today, tomorrow will be better. They may escape into alcohol, escape into substance abuse, escape in America, which has the most war veterans around the world because they fought more wars on behalf of others or for others. They escape into opioids, painkillers. That becomes their lifelong addiction. That's no hope. But today with artificial intelligence, right, in our movies, in our books, in our writings, we hope for a multiverse. And so there is no one world. You Christians believe in a one world created by God, fallen, saved by God. There could be parallel universes and the world throws up all this exciting thing that we watch for entertainment and they're quite good at entertainment. But you're going to ask yourself, is the multiverse the answer? In the Bible, is God's metaverse. There is only one reality. There are no parallel realities. There is God. There is God's enemy, Satan. There is men and women made in His image. And there is a titanic spiritual warfare between whether we will live out the image of God in us or live out the deformed image of God because Satan has hoodwinked us. There is only the metaverse and Jesus is coming Jesus, in coming as King, is offering us the kingdom of God. I give you the true version. This life that you live is not the true life. This life you live, you live with disease, decay, demons and death. The life I offer you has no sin, no Satan, no disease, no decay, no death. You will never go to another hospital. You will never go to another cemetery. Have you found a place like that where there are no hospitals and no cemeteries? Please tell me where it is. And so he goes on. Disciples of Jesus, we are the only ones who can be distinctively hopeful. Why? We believe that Jesus is the King, God's promised Messiah. And he's come to usher in the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God breaks in through Jesus, the kingdom of Satan breaks down and retreats. That's why the demons can recognize Jesus, but don't acknowledge Jesus. And so we believe that our present suffering, because the world lives under Satan and sin, will be reversed. Jesus, our true hope, is the conqueror of disease, demons, and death. So I ask of myself and ask of you, have you experienced Jesus' distinctive hope? Jesus' unshakable hope? Jesus' invincible hope? Through the past 30 over years I've been here, as our members come down with inexplicable illnesses, cancers, the terminal illnesses with life, we've seen each one in hearing the gospel and knowing Jesus as their Saviour and Lord say to us in their own way in the last stages of their life, Pastor Chris, Pastor Joe, Pastor Jeff, I'm ready to go. I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death. Have we cycled them into that state? Woe to me if I, a preacher, a pastor, woe to all the preachers of the world if what we have sold you is a multiverse. Just a parallel reality that you can choose to believe in, but it's not the truth. And Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life. He is not the resurrection and the life. He is not the door through which we enter. He is not the light of this world. He is not who He is. You can choose your own universe. universe. There is no such multiverse. There is only the King 
and the kingdom of God. This is the robust hope between life, death and resurrection. It's a distinctive hope. First Peter will call it a living hope. Every other hope you have is a dead hope. You hoped it in and it failed. You hope in it and it failed. You hope in a person and it failed. And so our granddaughter is uh, learning the gospel in different ways. She loves reading the Bible. I'll say more about that. And then Fred Rogers is a man you should know. You watch the movie in which Tom Hanks acted. It's a beautiful day in the neighbourhood. And Fred Rogers was a Presbyterian pastor and he saw that American media, the Western media, was increasingly secularised, ungodly. So he decided that he must get into that space and occupy that space for God. So he started a programme called A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood and How to Love Your Neighbour. And all of that is so Bible-rooted and so Christian, right? And so she now, our granddaughter, watches that and sing songs from that. And one of the things it taught in one of the episodes is, you know, what do young children suffer from? Young children suffer from separation anxiety. When their parents leave them at two years old, three years old, they cry and cry. When you leave them in Sunday school downstairs, they cry and cry. When you leave them at preschool, they cry and cry. At kindergarten, they cry and cry. There's separation anxiety. And the song that's taught by, by, by that episode, Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, grown-ups always come back. A child needs to know the basis of their hope. So when her parents leave, we can sing that song to her, grown-ups always come back. So when the parents come back, right, she says, grown-ups always come back. Then grandfather came along. But you know who is the most reliable grown-up? Jesus. Because sometimes parents do not come back you got to teach them too that the parent may fall sick, the parent may have an accident that takes their life. Sometimes the parent may not come back, but Jesus will always come back. That is the distinctive, robust hope we have in Christ. Amen? Are you growing in that? Have you experienced that? Or does it take a terminal illness to sort that out? that nothing can take you, nothing can separate you from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. I would just want to pray and encourage you, no matter where you are or your children are or your loved ones are in this faith journey, never give up. And then he moves on to be, we are to be distinctively loving. But to you who are listening, I say, Jesus says, four things. Can you read them with me? Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. This is Jesus' fourfold call to love. Right? So you now read this. Can you memorize this? This is how you are to relate to people who might hate you. Beginning with fellow Jews who will hate you because you believe in me as the Messiah, as the Son of Man. Right? So read this one more time, then we close our eyes, then you say this back to me. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Close your eyes. Say it back to me. No. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> That's why you must not just read Scripture. You must not just read Scripture. You must memorize Scripture and keep it in your heart. When you are the victim of opposition and persecution, well, when you are the victim of cancel culture as a teenager, you've got to remember these four things. Let's say it one more time. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Pray that. Claim that. Live that. Feel that. Experience that. The love of Jesus that conquers. The love of Jesus that reverses. The love of Jesus that overcomes. That is what it means to listen to Jesus. And then he gives four illustrations of love. It wants, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other. That is not be taken literally. That means Christians walk around. That doesn't mean you're a Christian, you know. 
right? What's he saying? If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. The coat is the outer garment keeping you from cold. You could die from hypothermia. And Israel has winters. Do not withhold even your inner shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, let him take it. Do not demand it back. And then the golden rule. And what is the golden rule? Right? The golden rule is do to others as you would have them do to you. When you pull it all together, you notice that Jesus' love is so unique, so special, so different to the world's love. And how is it different? How is it different? He says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? And so, Jesus' distinctive love is a distinctive love. <coughs> and so you've got to stand out, stand up and stand out for him. Jim Caviezel, I don't know how to pronounce his name, right? He was the actor chosen by Mel Gibson, the director, to play the role of Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. But Mel Gibson told him, if you play Christ this role, you will no longer get jobs in Hollywood. If you do get the jobs, it will be B-grade firms, C-grade firms. He was already an A-grade actor. Go Google his life. And it was true. After he played the role, he was a Christ Christian, after he played the role, he was ostracized by Hollywood. But he went around speaking in Christian circles, saying, I spent my early life trying to blend in, trying to fit in, trying to hide the fact that I was a Christian. But now I spend my life right, standing up for Christ. It's not worth wasting your time and energy blending in. Invest your time in standing up for Jesus, to be distinctive for Jesus. Amen? You think for the BB boys who made that simple video, right? Uh, we wrote the script for them. Pastor Joe or Pastor Daniel, who leads up the work, wrote the script for them and said, please read this. They wrote it from their heart. They felt the love of their officers. They are being ministered to. And they speak it from their heart that the best thing about school now is boys' brigade. The best thing about school is girls' brigade. For other people, the best thing about school, favourite subject is recess. You ask the young kids in school, generally you get favourite subject, recess. <laughs> but for them, favourite thing about, about school is actually boys' brigade, girls' brigade. And so they have to stand up with their uniforms. So when was the last time you were distinctive in something? So I probably shared this and it's always struck me. We were invited to preach in the UK, so we hired a car before we went. And then, yep, because we had to travel between London, Oxford, Cambridge, different cities. And so we booked a car. I stayed with a friend in, in Oxford. And then that morning, we left from Oxford and then I went to pick up the car. I got the booking. It was a cold day. Mona sat with the host in the car. I went up to the counter by myself and said, this is my booking for the car. I said, yeah, you do have a booking. It's right. Um, a Volkswagen, a Volkswagen. Yep, that's right. But, oh, sorry, sir. I said, look, it's Samuel, sorry, but we are out of Volkswagen. The only thing we have is a Mercedes. And I said to him, I, I can't take the Mercedes. I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm going to drive to churches. I don't want to get out of Mercedes and say, I told you, pastor from Singapore, crazy rich Asians, <laughs> finish, gone. <laughs> and he said to me, you're strange. Every other person we offer an upgrade at the same price will jump at it and you do not want this. And I, I don't say that as a boast. And I didn't intend to be distinctive. I was unintentionally distinctive. I just didn't want to arrive at church after church in the UK, get out of my Mercedes, say, a hired car, uh, original VW, but no VW, but now Mercedes. Such a long explanation, right? <laughs> and so this, that was me, unintentionally distinctive. Will you be intentionally distinctive? Years ago, we went as a group called our, our Synod, the what, highest ruling body or whatever. We went for a retreat to pray and plan for the year. I uh, went to Batam. 
So we arrived at Batam, immigration, they all went through, the other pastors and leaders all went through. The immigration officer stopped me. He said, passport, about to expire. No six months, cannot. Right, in, in broken English, I understood. I look at it, ah, oh, in my forgetfulness, my lapse. <laughs> then they took me into a room, I think there were two officers, and they said, this in Bahasa, Indonesia, this is big problem. Very big problem. Masa'ala besa in, in, in Malay. Masa'ala besa, mayap besa. And I knew growing up from Malaysia, that meant they needed a bribe. <laughs> this big problem will go away if some money slipped into the passport. Then I had to explain to them in my Bahasa Malaysia, uh, saya pastor is padri. Right? Saya padri, tak boleh bagi wang, cannot give money. <laughs> <laughs> then in response to that, banyak besar. Besar. The word big problem kept repeating. Masalah besar. Ini problem besar. And I said, tak boleh. So, besar tak boleh, besar tak boleh. Went on for 20 minutes, half an hour, the whole group was held behind because of me. So finally, they let me go because they realized that I, I will not pay, right? And all the pastors waiting at the time, I think it was vice moderator, said, what vice did you commit? Vice moderator, what? Vice moderator, right? And so again, I was unintentionally distinctive. I didn't mean to be distinctive. It was a lapse on my part. And so I asked myself, would you be intentionally distinctive and be like Jim Cassival? That you pray that this week there will be an occasion, a circumstance in which you could stand up for Christ at school, at work, in your family, be distinctive about it. And that's what it means. So what does this distinctive love look like? Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High because He's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And so choice between two fathers, national Israel claimed that they were children of God and Jesus would tell them, right, in different passages, you think that they're children of God simply by calling Abraham as your father? No, you are children of God by believing in me. Because everything from Abraham, Moses, David onwards pointed towards me. So you become a, a follower of Jesus, becomes a child of God. A follower of Jesus becomes a child of God. And what is this distinctive love? A distinctive love for enemies under persecution. He had to warn the Jews who believe in him. Your fellow countrymen will persecute you. Singaporeans will come against you as fellow Singaporeans. There is nothing more frightening than to be persecuted by your fellow countrymen. The world practices reciprocal love. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. You do something good for me, I'll do something good for you. Disciples practice redeeming love. Reciprocal love is self-preserving love, self-protecting love, self-saving love. Redeeming love is sacrificial love. And as you display this love, you display the mercy of God. Because God is merciful, because God is loving and in His love, He's merciful towards you, you will always not receive His wrath. You will receive a new beginning. And disciples will display like father, like son, love. You will display ambassadorial love. People will look at this love and say, you remind me of, you remind me of God the Father. That is ambassadorial role. I've said this many times. You must never tell a teenager, you look like your mother. You look like your father. Because the teenager thinks it's insulting. But the most, the least insulting thing, the most complimentary thing somebody could say to you is that you, you remind me of Jesus. And you remind me of God our Father. The macro examples of that in church history, from Israel that persecuted the early believers in Christ, to the Roman Emperor Nero, who blamed Christians for the bad economy and the collapsing Roman Empire, who supposedly put wax around Christians and lit them as candles for his parties. Whether that actually happened, but he was cruel towards Christians. Whether it was Chinese emperors who banned the Bible, and whether it was 
empires to kill Christians, whether it's Idi Amin in Africa, and even today, whether it's militant Hinduism that kills off Christians in India today, whether it's militant Muslims that still dream of the caliphate and tracks down Christians that stand in the face of them, whether it's militant atheists who get on social media and say, how dare you tell us that there's only binary sexuality? We believe in a world of sexual plasticity. And the language if you get out there with militant atheists in a Western world is, right, you bigots, one day we'll get rid of you from the face of the earth. You who tell us there's only one way to live. You who tell us there's only black and white and no greys. We had a wonderful family conference. And who started the family conference was Dr. Robert Solomon speaking about the elderly. And he had a quote, the quote about persecution, that you may kill off the workmen of God, but you will never stop the work of God. And the walking, living, breathing example is after 70 plus years of communist rule that bans religion of any kind. China has more Christians than at any time in her history. You might kill the workmen, the mysteries and the pastors and the believers, but you'll never stop the march, the unstoppable march of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That is the, invi the distinctive, invincible love that we have in Christ Jesus. And so those are the macro examples. What are the micro examples? Then you might face this as you stand up for Jesus in your school spaces, in your ITE, in your polytechnic, in your university. As you stand up for, for Jesus in, this, in that space, in that social media space, and be wise about it. You don't need to go looking for hate. Hate will come looking for you. Don't conduct deep discussions with people about theology and methodology and sexuality and humanity out there. If you want to share, share with, pe with people eyeball to eyeball, Starbucks, McDonald's, somewhere at our green cafe here on the site at ARPC, sit down, look at them, plead with them about why the Bible is true and Jesus is Saviour and Lord and why He's King and inviting you to the Kingdom of God. So Reverend John Ting shared years ago, as um, part of his work reaching out to former drug addicts, one of the converts was a former gangster, gangster head, etc. And as he became converted, yeah, he started to really show his love for Jesus. And his, somebody had passed on in his family. And he was the eldest son, but he would not. I think his grandpa passed on. And he, as part of his devotion to Christ, he said he would not embark on ancestral worship. He would not hold the joysticks. He will not do the things that will give the wrong impression that human beings who pass away suddenly become immortal or deity. He will not do that. His father got him, this convert, at the funeral to take off his shirt and the father beat him in front of all the relatives. I'll never forget the illustration that John Ting told us. We still have to pay the price. Sometimes our boys and girls begin to tell their parents they believe. Someone from Princess Street told me this years ago, first to believe, and the parents scolded them, scolded her. She led her siblings to believe. Every Sunday they had to climb out of the window <laughs> to go to church. You just don't put your ears enough to the ground to hear how much hostility is still out there from then to now. This is the distinctive love. So I'm going to ask you, what kind of love are you experiencing? The compromise, fit in, blend in love that no one knows? Or you decide like Jim Cassavelle, not much use trying to win the applause, the favour of this world. Rather stand up for Jesus and be known for it. That is the challenge Jesus gives his disciples. And then, he tells them at the end here, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. 
Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and you'll be given. And then he moves on to what? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your own of your eye when you do not see the log that is your own eye? And with this, people say, Hey, Jesus had a sense of humor. Lah. He's not bad. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. So when you learn, listen to Jesus, he teaches you, he instructs you how to love God, how to love your enemies, and how to love people within the kingdom itself. And so don't spend your time if you are a Jesus person, if you are a kingdom person, you should stop doing this. You should stop magnifying the sin in people's lives. Stop being a policeman to other people. You should be a policeman to your own holiness, righteousness. Don't shrink from your own sin. With other people, you have 20-20 vision of their sin. With your own sin, you are almost blind. First you suffer cataract, then you go by, become blind. Is that true? Absolutely true. So our marriage enrichment, we do this. Differences between people usually become repulsive. So for all the married folk here, can you list for me now, just write down somewhere on your phone, the top few differences I cannot accept of my husband. The top few differences, I just give you top three differences you cannot accept of your wife. Say only three. Eh? Can it be slightly more than three? I've got so many differences with my spouses. Right? So, yeah. And which of those differences triggers you the most to ungodliness? Which of those? Right? So we say at the end of the marriage enrichment retreat, can you identify one difference that is triggering you to sinfulness and ungodliness and pray to God and by the Spirit of God, pray that you no longer be triggered by this difference in your spouse anymore. Amen. You think that can happen? So between me and Mona, we differ a little bit about tidiness. Just a little bit. Understatement. I told you I grew up in a home of 12 children and number 12, I, was bo I wasn't born with a silver spoon, I was born with a silver broom. <laughs> From morning to night, we all look after our own beds, our own pillows, we fold things, fold our own clothes, do our own things, everybody cares. How to care for 15 people if everyone is not taught how to care for themselves? 12 kids. So tidiness, neatness is next to godliness for me. Right? Tidiness is, is near there. For Mona growing in a smaller home, that's hang loose, lah, just hang loose. Right? And because her study table is in our bedroom, right? every time I see the study table, I suffer PTSD. <laughs> because I just can't cope with untidiness. You follow? So I have to make a promise with God by your grace by your spirit I'll be blind to Mona's untidiness <laughs> I've got a lot more things that trigger her the other way but she has a godly spirit she doesn't highlight those differences and be triggered by them you follow? I just want to pause there with you and ask yourself how long more do you want to carry on in your relationships looking, magnifying the speck in your brother's eyes so that, saying, if she doesn't change, I'm going to divorce her. Really? Because you are masters of that. We give ourselves so much rope, we never hang ourselves. You give such a tight rope to your spouse, every time they put it around them, they hang themselves. Literally. That's how relationships go downhill. We are always policemen of other people's religiosity and spirituality. We are never policemen of our own, or seldom do we. The redeeming thing is to stop that. And you won't stop that unless Jesus is your Saviour and your Lord. Amen? Is that true? You will always be laser beam sharp about other people's sin but very blind to our others. And then he ends, you got to be distinctively wise, not just about yourself and others. 
You got to be distinctively wise about good fruit, bad fruit. You got to be distinctively wise about how you build your house. And he says, everyone who comes to me, hears my words, puts them into practice. That means follow Jesus at all costs. Even as you see him dying, bleeding on the cross, he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. No one will save me from Satan, sin and death. Follow him at all costs. I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. Palestine full of sand, very sandy. When sand gets very hot and dry, it hardens. And then you're deluded, you can build something on hardened sand. When rain comes, you know what happens to hardened sand? Hardened sand just wilts away, just gives way. You gotta dig, be diligent enough to dig deep enough to arrive at rock and build your house upon that rock. You got to make the effort to listen to Jesus, to listen to Jesus and listen to who He really is and who really loves you, who really laid down His life for you, who really cares for you, who will be the grown-up who comes back for you. It will be Jesus. No one else will be coming back from the dead for you, though you've given your life to them. So how is your hearing? How is your obeying? How far will you go to listen and obey? These are the characteristics of not the followers of the artists of this world. These are the characteristics of followers of Jesus. Distinctively hopeful, distinctively loving of enemies, especially in persecution. Distinctively wise not to always find fault with others whom we are called to love distinctively wise to choose between good fruit, bad fruit, and distinctively wise as to how we build our house. So how serious are you about listening to God's Word? In the morning when you wake up, do you run to your Bible, open your Bible, and read it aloud with excitement that this is God speaking to me? That will be a measure. Last thing at night, do you read the Bible that I've heard so many voices today and some have worried me, some have burdened me, some have criticized me, but I listen to God's Word and this Word loves me, tells me I'm loved by God. How far will you go to listen to God personally? How far will you go to listen to God as a family? Then no matter how difficult it is, we try as a family of God to listen. So walking away from today, can you still remember what I got you to close your eyes and remember? You should... Four things. Love your enemy. Okay, by next week we'll try again. <laughs> and I really am giving that to you and myself as something from God's Word you have to remember. Living in a world that is hostile towards God, that hates you because you believe in Jesus, how far will you go to listen and obey? Do you not think that God has given you the mental capacity to remember four things, not even four verses, you can, you surely can. You remember everything about Taylor Swift, everything about Ed Sheeran, almost everything about Coldplay. Cannot the same mind be given the same fascination, devotion and dedication to Jesus? Absolutely yes to move from idolatry to the worship of Jesus. How far will you go to listen? But there are good signs for us here in the RPC. The numbers coming to our services are increasing. God has blessed us with one church in three places. In about three to six months' time, we go to ARPC at Tengah. And our suitability to go is dependent on how far we are willing to listen to God personally, as families, as discipleship groups, and here. The good signs is when the church camp opens next week, it will take less than two hours for it to be booked out, which tells you you love to go to Malaysia. I mean, which tells me that you, are, you love to listen to God's Word in Malaysia. Please sort out your reasons for going, right? The, the, the exchange rate is wonderful now. It's 3.5. Might plunge to 4. 
Please do not go because it's cheaper. Please go because you're going to be fed spiritually and challenged. Amen? That's so important distinctively. Let me end on a personal note. A personal note is, do you hear what God is saying to you in Christ? And this is a message that our granddaughter sent to us. Um, they're in Melbourne because my son is studying Bible college there. And we just went and came back and she, she sent a message to us. I hope it plays. What on earth am I doing here? Yeah, yeah, nai nai, I love you. For those who are not Chinese, grandpa, grandma, I love you. Can you come? God has only one message. I love you. I sent my son for you to make you my children, to make you followers of Jesus. Can you come? Follow him? Is that so hard to believe? that God loves you more than anybody else. Let's stand and pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of Man. You are the Christ. By your grace, by your word, by your spirit, enlighten us of your true identity. For knowing you for who you are and what you've really come to do will make us true disciples of you. Help us to understand that you call us to be distinctively, to be distinctive in our hope. That though we may suffer, Though we may be ostracized, though we may be cancelled, simply because we believe in you, it is worth it. Because you have come as king and the, uh, the kingdom has been ushered in. And when you return, we experience the fullness of the beauty of that kingdom. Thank you that you call us to a distinctive love for enemies. It's a redeeming love a merciful love, an ambassadorial love, that when people see us loved the way you love, empowered by your Spirit, they will think, they will point to God our Father and help us to be distinctive in our wisdom, not just waste our time seeing the big sins in people's life, but acknowledging our own sins. Give us a distinctive wisdom to build our house upon you, the rock. And in all of this, to point to you as we ourselves journey towards your glorious return. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.